A woman is found at the bottom of the staircase in her own home. Her husband is now the prime suspect. During his trial, the investigators managed to connect him to another accidental staircase death. Would it be enough for him to be found guilty, or would another theory offer a more plausible explanation as to what happened to Kathleen Peterson and Liz Ratliff? Hello, friends! You know who you are. I know who the hell I am. And we all know why we're gathered here. We all know what we are here to do. Before that, this is the intro where I usually don't talk about the case for some reason. Listen, today I discovered something that can be so useful to so many people. I don't know why I haven't discovered this before. And then I tweeted about it. So make sure you follow me like on the socials, because especially Twitter. Like I offload everything that I offload in the intro and the outtakes here on there. So uh, yeah, basically, you know, like people that have middle names, either they're British or like Spanish or Latino, or I mean, there's plenty of countries that have middle names, Maya. Well, well, if you're like attracted to a person you aren't supposed to be attracted to, like even if it is an actor, it's kind of like old for somebody you should be dating or fantasizing about, Google their middle name. I swear, I swear, it works better than imagining, like, my dad naked. It somehow worked better for it. It somehow worked better, guys. Um, <laughs> Let me share how we are here. So I find the actor Edgar Ramirez, like, super hot, right? He was in, you know, Johnny Versace, well, that's the unhot role. He was in plenty other things. What did I see recently? Wasp Network or something like that. Basically, he's in all of the hot, like, Spanish movies, right? But also he's kind of of an inappropriate age and I don't like that I like him. I can't explain it because I mentally I know that he's not like super attractive, but emotionally and um, genitally I can't comprehend. So I googled his middle name and it's Filiberto and that did it for me. That did it for me. Just imagine, I cannot imagine myself not being associated with the Filiberto. I just, sorry to all of the Filibertas watching this, but I can't. <laughs> I just can't. So, hey, maybe I help out a poor soul out there today to figure out how not to be attracted to anybody. <laughs> to figure out how not to be attracted to a person. But we are not here today because of that. We are here to finish the saga on Michael Peterson and the staircase case. So let us get into the zone. Let's breathe in, breathe out, not imagine our naked parents, and then recap the story that I have told you in part one, where we left it off with Michael, and then drop ourselves right into it. In part one of our story, we met Michael Peterson. Michael Peterson had a habit of lying from a very early age. Sometimes he lied in order to embellish a story. Sometimes he lied about really trivial things. Sometimes about bigger things in life. A lot of times for self-preservation or just to make himself sound like a hero. This, although it can be considered a huge flaw, was also one of Michael's biggest advantages. Because that is what made him a great fictional writer. Writing was Michael's primary source of income, and after he finished university, through his first and second marriage, 
Michael accumulated over a million dollars only in advances for his books, so that doesn't even count the profits that he made from the sales. His books revolved around war and homosexuality, and Michael will end up doing research into both of those topics. Now, when it comes to his private life, we learned that Michael led quite a nomadic lifestyle due to his family, but also once he married. His first wife was a teacher called Patty, and she had two best friends named Liz and Pat. And Michael would eventually steal from one of her best friends, Pat, and also be the main cause for the drift in the women's friendship. Michael would also be the last person to see... Liz Ratcliffe, Patty's friend, alive. Liz was found at the bottom of the stairway, and her death was declared an accident. But even before Liz's death, Michael had already ensured to take care of her finances, in particular her will. And her will left Liz's two daughters in Michael's care. After Liz's death, Michael and Patty's marriage was also about to end. And even before the divorce, Michael had already moved in with a neighbor that lived just a block away. This neighbor of his, Kathleen Atwater, will soon become his second wife. The way that his professional life finally ended up combining with the personal was in three particular tangents. The first one was the research into homosexuality. Michael would later be saying that Kathleen was aware that he was bisexual and that he was chatting with men on the side. The second point would be that Michael relied on writing as his primary source of income. And when writing a new book wouldn't bring him enough money, he wrote for smaller publications. He would write for newspapers. And he was more and more relentless about his views. He would write against the police, he would write against the government, against tax increases. So for the duration of his second marriage, he also accumulated quite a few enemies. And finally, due to the writing being his main source of income, when he wasn't publishing any books and making any money, Michael also wasn't getting any other jobs to support the family. And this had taken a toll on both Kathleen and him. During the last two years of her life, Kathleen was the only provider for the family. But according to her friends and family, she was also stressing over this, because her company wasn't doing as well, and they started downsizing. So Kathleen thought she might soon be out of job. Meanwhile, during those two years, Michael wasn't writing at all. He wasn't bringing any income to the household. So this is where Michael and Kathleen were when we went through the timeline of events of the days before Kathleen would also be found at the bottom of the staircase in their family home. Maybe Kathleen found out that Michael was bisexual, that he was chatting with men on the side. Maybe they argued about their finances and about the accumulating debts. And maybe none of that happened, and this was just what Michael Peterson would say it was. An accident. In particular, where we left it off in part one was with the police finally getting the warrant to take the items, search the house, photograph the crime scene, and finally start up the investigation. And we left Michael still inside of his family home with his son Todd lawyering up and Michael deleting some emails or thinking that he is going to end up deleting them. 
At 8.30 a.m., mortuary services arrived in order to remove Kathleen Peterson's body and deliver her to the medical examiner's office. Once that happened, once the photographs and the video evidence was taken, the paramedics on the scene were replaced by the forensic experts that would later end up testifying in court. Using tweezers, they would extract hair, fibers, Christmas tree needles, and samples of wood from the crime scene. The police officer also ended up searching the whole house. Upstairs, downstairs, garage, the attic. They also performed a cursory search around the perimeter of the house, looking for a possible murder weapon. Looking into discarding another avenue if they ended up confirming that this might not have been an accident. During part one, I spoke about how Todd immediately lawyered up, called his uncle, Michael's brother, Bill, and how they got them the attorney, they got them the defense lawyer on the spot. Now, this defense lawyer advised Michael not to speak to anybody without them present, pretty standard, but also they advised him to stay on the location wherever they were taking the evidence from, sort of in a way to monitor everything that's going on. Michael will do so, and also that will help him spot multiple mistakes that were made by the police on that night. As I mentioned, some of the first mistakes were made once the paramedics made it there, the firefighters made it to the location, the police officers, because they didn't really treat this as a crime scene for over half an hour. In order to understand the next set of mistakes, let us talk about what the police seized from the crime scene and rather what they didn't take. Among the items that they have taken were free computers, blood swabs from the kitchen couch, a copy of O.J. Simpson notebook, a hand grenade that was serving as a paperweight, that was Mike's souvenir from Vietnam, and, of course, the clothing that both Michael and Kathleen were wearing on the day. For the reason that they will never be able to explain, what they didn't seize were the towels that were resting underneath Kathleen's head, the eyeglasses that they found on the stairway, and the phone that had little speckles of something red on it. Now, with Kathleen's body in the autopsy room, Dr. Deborah Reddish is about to assess the injuries and also to shave Kathleen's head to better see the injuries in that area. Just wanted to give you the heads up because I will put the sketches of the autopsy on the screen, in particular the injuries to the head area, because they can help you understand or like form opinions what really happened here compared to what Deborah Reddish was saying. If you think that's not something you want to see, just maybe turn your head for around 60 to 90 seconds until I finish telling you about her conclusions. So she examined the head and discovered seven areas of wounds on it. Many of those wounds were so deep that they went from the scalp through the scalp. There was a lot of bleeding into the scalp issue around the wounds. One of those wounds was actually so deep that it looked as a flap of skin, as if somebody kind of peeled almost one or a couple of layers of the skin, and that part could be lifted up, enabling Dr. Radish to see the skull beneath. Then there was a tri-prolonged cut, Something that looked as if a small sharp rake dug three inches along the scalp. 
In her opinion, each cut was caused by at least one individual impact, which would lead Deborah to believe that this wasn't caused by a fall, rather it had to be caused by a person striking the head over and over again. Another thing that, according to Dr. Radish, wasn't consistent with the fall were the defensive wounds on Kathleen's arms. These also looked to her as defensive wounds that were caused by separate impacts, as if somebody was trying to fend off an attack. And another thing that I wanted to point your attention to, because obviously this is a long autopsy report that you can find online, but another thing that particularly stuck out to Dr. Radish was the hemorrhage of the left thyroid cartilage. So, if you are thinking of the left side of the neck, because if you remember, her neck ended up being parallel to her spinal cord, which was the first red flag for everybody on the scene. Deborah said that this is usually caused by strangulation. If you think where your thyroid is, it would correspond with attempted strangulation or strangulation, basically the damage being done to the bone. It, again, wouldn't be consistent with the fall. Their final conclusions will be that Kathleen died from a blow to the head. There was also no high blood level in Kathleen's system. They found that the blood alcohol content was about 0.07%, which is below the legal limit. So she could have technically even driven with the alcohol level that she had in her blood. Let us now go back to the crime scene, because, of course, detectives with a warrant will be able to return a couple of times. One such time was with a blood spatter analyst, who would analyze does the blood on the wall correspond with one or the other theory. What he found out weird to begin with was that the crime scene looked like somebody tried to sanitize it, as in prior to the police and the paramedics coming on the scene that usually he would say either somebody would do like a thorough job of trying to do everything and then they would have to use luminol to make the blood pop up, or they wouldn't even bother. So the fact that some paper towels were used was just really odd to him. Like, what were they trying to hide? The blood spatter analyst, Duan Deaver, was doing what was known as the stringing process. So, this is a method that helps you configure the movement of blood from its source to its final destination. The conclusions that he would make would point out that the blood spatters on the walls showed that Kathleen Peterson suffered blunt force trauma. Duan would be crucial later in trial, and you can understand why. He would surround most of the pictures of all of the blood splatter with, like, rulers surrounding them, sort of giving you the perspective of just how high they would go or how much in width. Again, confirming that this isn't consistent with the person that just fell down the stairs. He would show the pictures of the speckles of blood in certain areas consistent with the blunt force trauma to the head. But this blood spatter wouldn't be the only thing the Deaver would analyze. He would analyze the clothes. Especially what he found interesting was Michael's shorts. Now, if you have really been paying attention to part one, 
You remember around 3 a.m. a detective came onto the scene and what I found strange was, well, the fact that the blood seemed to be drying, but then when they looked into the kitchen, it seemed like somebody was touching like different objects with bloody fingerprints, especially a kettle. Like it seemed like they were looking for something, trying to open a cupboard, and then they took a kettle. And looking at the shorts and having that information, what Deaver had concluded was that it seemed like the blood inside of the pockets was darker than the blood on the shorts, sort of like in the crotch area. And that led him to believe that Michael Peterson might have taken the kettle and poured it over his shorts in order to make it all smudgy instead of splattery, in order to make it seem more like he was hovering over and hugging his wife's dead body rather than being the perpetrator of an attack. Deaver also found blood spatter and blood stain on the back of Michael Peterson's shorts. So he thought, okay, again, this is weird if this is just the guy that ran in and found his wife unconscious, right? Like, why would it be on the back of his shorts? And then he found blood spatter in the crotch area and also the spatter inside of the right leg. So this evidence indicated one single scenario to him. Michael Peterson standing over his wife Kathleen as he was beating her. Because again, visualization-wise, whatever he was beating her with would have to go over one of his shoulders, like over his head. And it at least happened seven times, as we know from the autopsy. And this would lead to the blood being found inside of his leg and also on the back of his shorts. Deaver also found 90 degree drops of blood on the toe, looking at Mike's right shoe that was found next to Kathleen. This to him indicated that that particular foot was directly underneath the dripping blood. On the outside of that shoe, he spotted some small droplets with directionality showing that the blood had fallen while the foot was still in motion. All of that evidence helped Deaver form a theory in his head. But what surprised him was the impression of the sole of a foot on top of the back of Kathleen's leg, as if somebody might have stepped on her as she was lying there. There are a couple of things in this story that just left very vague and unexplained, and this is one of those. But it's also one of the most resounding pieces of evidence, I think, in everybody's head. I would like to know if you think Michael Peterson is innocent, how do you explain this? Because she was found on her back in a pool of blood, and this was still like a sharp impression on the back of her pants. So how do you explain this if she had fell down the stairs, if he didn't touch her body at all? And now we come to the part that changed my whole opinion on this story, because I can bet that this part isn't mentioned in the staircase, and also I couldn't find any pictures of the clothes that they're referring to here, because they had to examine Todd's clothing as well. Most of the blood on his clothing were like 
transfer stains and smears as if he maybe tried to revive or like hug Kathleen when he found her down the stairs. But then at the bottom right hand of Todd's jeans was one large stain of blood. And it didn't look like a smudge. It looked more like a drop. Because if it looked like a smudge, you can say, okay, maybe if he was in the vicinity of Kathleen's body, you know, maybe he stepped into it, he brushed upon the wall or something like that. But what this indicated to Deaver, because it was kind of like a drop, was as if he was in direct touch with a murder weapon, carrying it over his shoulder. Now, you might think something will result out of this, right? No, don't get too hung up on Todd, because I did, and then I was disappointed by the end. Because if you remember, A, Todd was the first person to lawyer up, well, provide lawyers for the whole family. B, truly, I can give this one up to Michael Peterson. The police, from the get-go, had tunnel vision. They always suspected that Michael, and Michael only, was responsible for this. That this wasn't an accident, that Michael is the culprit. Meaning that one of the mistakes that nobody really talks about, that was made once the police was called to the scene, was that nobody really paid attention to Todd. Nobody really made sure to question Todd with the lawyers as well, about the exact timeline, about when did Todd first come to the crime scene, why was there any blood on him, and also why did he come with his friends? Were the friends there before? Were they called in? They never, from what I could find, searched any of his cars, any of the friends' cars, possibly looking for blood, possibly looking for somebody transporting a murder weapon. Speaking of the murder weapon, the police did return on December the 10th to search once again, to search a certain perimeter. They brought a canine dog that specialized in article searches, and this dog was following this back-and-forth circular pattern for about an hour and 45 minutes, and nothing was found. At 8.30 p.m. that day, they finally released the house to the family. One last thing that they did was that the police seized this walking stick that they found next to the fireplace, sort of as a possible murder weapon, but they didn't see any blood on it. It didn't really look like it was used recently, meaning that no obvious weapon was found in the Petersons' home. At this point, when the house was released, it was only the Petersons that have actually seen the crime scene, that have seen the staircase, the blood around it. Of course, the pictures will be shown in the court, but Kathleen's family is yet to witness any of it. Up to this point, they have trusted Michael that this was an accident, because they didn't have any reason not to. However, as soon as the house was released, Michael, Bill, his brother, Michael's sons, Clayton and Todd, and one of his friends, upon hearing that information, have left the neighbor's house, where they were staying at that point, just commemorating and grieving Kathleen, and immediately headed to Michael's. Why? So that they can conduct a cleanup. None of them told any of Kathleen's sisters that they're going to do this, that the house is released again, that they can go and see the actual crime scene. All of these men 
cleaned up the blood from the hallway, the back of the door, any other place they could find outside of the stairwell. Didn't get to it yet. And now these women, Candace and Lori, Kathleen's sister, clock that the men are all in the house, so they cross the street and join them. And as soon as they walked in and went to the staircase, they saw all of the blood. Lori was the person to actually climb onto the stairwell and just point at all of the blood. Blood on the walls, blood high up, blood, so much blood, blood everywhere. From that point on, both sisters just couldn't deny it any longer. They didn't believe that Michael Peterson was innocent once they saw all of the blood on the scene. My question is, how come that suddenly Michael Peterson, who didn't care about how unkempt his house was, who didn't care about the upkeeping of his dogs, who neglected his house completely and left it all up to Kathleen and the maid that they have had before. How come he is suddenly a clean freak? Going into the house, making sure that him and all of the other men are cleaning it before everybody else sees the staircase. There is one other possible option, that he didn't want to traumatize Kathleen's family members. Sure. Sure, but that option would also mean that he truly believed that he will be found innocent of this, and that this will never go to court, and that her own family will never have the reason to actually look at the pictures of the staircase in the first place. Because that's the only other reason that I can think of as to why he suddenly switched from the dirtiest person ever to, like, a clean freak and got his brother and his own sons in on it. After this cleanup, though, Candice started seeing everything in a different light. He went to the funeral home to make funeral arrangements for Kathleen, and here, this is so heartbreaking, she brought her passport and just asked the funeral director if he can just for one last time check that this is really her sister, and that this isn't some sort of accident of mistaken identity, possibly. And with one nod, he just broke her heart again and confirmed that this indeed was Kathleen. So she went to the cemetery, chose a plot for Kathleen's burial, and later Candace will have sets of arguments with Michael over purchasing a headstone, because, of course, he would need to pay more money for a headstone, and you would need to tell the cemetery up until a certain deadline for them to put it up. And at first, Michael was just postponing the topic, but then at last, something will happen that will make Michael prioritize over the headstone and put himself first, because he thought that the money should actually be spent towards his defense. Before we get to that, now Candace looking at everything sort of from a completely different perspective, she came to Peterson's house again to write the obituary and for Michael to maybe add a couple of words. And as she's doing that, she notices Michael is really restless and he's just getting up, looking through the window towards the pool. So she gets up and looks towards the pool herself, and she says at that moment the chills went down her spine because she notices that the furniture was gone. And she couldn't even process it in herself, but she said it just made no sense. 
She's just trying to fit this puzzle together, and the fact that Michael had cleaned up the crime scene already and had gotten rid of all of the furniture where supposedly her and Kathleen were on the night of the murder, just getting rid of every trace of her sister in such short span of time just didn't make any sense to Candace. As Candace is at the Petersons' household, a search warrant is served in the funeral home. Why? Because they have found what appeared to be a used condom in the master's bedroom, where Michael and Kathleen would sleep. I won't spend too much time on this, because it can truly be summarized in one line. The line is that Todd would later tell the police that the condom belonged to one of his friends. Because his friend, we don't know the date, we don't know the time, we don't know what the why he was there, but he decided to bring a girl over and have sex in Kathleen's and Mike's bed. This was confirmed after the rape kit has been conducted on Kathleen's dead body, but not before Michael had his own theories and also told Caitlin, Kathleen's daughter, that maybe the police is now going to have a theory about the two of them having perverted sex, the two of them having affairs. Maybe they're going to find a motive for, I don't know, the intruder theory of events. I don't know what he was thinking, why he was spreading misinformation, why Todd didn't come up with this story earlier and just tell it to the police. But it happened, and then nothing really happened from it, except that they just re-victimized Kathleen and her body in death. Two days after that, there was a viewing for Kathleen at the funeral home. She was wearing all black, and she was wearing these pearls around her neck. Just sheer elegance through life and death. And when Candice asked Michael to write a couple of words, just a note in the visitor's book, what he wrote was, the next book will be about love, requited love, and will be about you, of course. Love, Mike. How can you make it about yourself? This is like... This is like when people wish somebody a happy birthday and they're like, I hope you have me in your life to brighten up your days. Like, it's not about you. It's really not about you and your writing and your next book and your talent in this very moment. I just thought I would share that because he just makes everything about himself. There's so much fight for self-preservation in Michael Peterson that it's actually just the next level. Kathleen's funeral was on the 13th. Only a week later, on the 20th of December, Michael was indicted on the first-degree murder charge. Now, you might wonder why, what confirmed it for the police. And that was the neurological examination results that they were waiting on. As you recall, Deborah Reddish performed the autopsy. They had the crime scene results. They were already seeing this as foul play. But what neurological examination observed were these red neurons. Due to them, they could confirm that Kathleen didn't die quickly, that it took her two to four hours. This examination confirmed that Kathleen was laying on the stairs with the blood draining from her body for that period of time. As the body would be bleeding out, the blood flow to her brain would decrease, depriving it of oxygen. 
And then without the oxygen, of course, the process of death would begin. But because of the brain cells dying, these red neurons would be born, would appear. And what they could see once they observed her brain was that this process was slow and it was widespread, meaning that the time it took the red neurons to develop provided plenty of opportunity for Michael to get help for his wife. Just if you needed reminding, Michael called the police at 2.41 a.m., but the time he couldn't account for was between 12.30 and 1.30. So, this exam confirmed that there was at least two or four hours allowing the premeditation to exist. The grand jury was now about to decide whether he was to get released on bail. So, they heard the testimony from three witnesses. One would be Dr. Deborah Reddish, the other one would be the agent Duan Deaver, the blood spatter analyst, and the third one would be the investigator, Art Holland, the person who was one of the first people on the scene who took over the investigation. After hearing those three testimonies, they indicted him on the first-degree murder charge. He was denied bond and he had to remain in Durham County Jail, at least until January 22nd, until the second hearing. His next visit to the court would be for the public to decide whether he could be released on bond. So, in January, a couple of people again testified in person, including the U.S. rep Nick Galifanakis that I mentioned in the first parter, and including his own son, Todd Peterson. Todd insisted that his father didn't pose a threat to the community, and also that his mother was a heavy drinker, implying that this could have been an accident. After these character witnesses, the judge decided to release Michael Peterson on $850,000 bond. Mike signed papers on his home in order to cover the bail. He gave up his passport and agreed not to leave North Carolina, and he was released awaiting trial. A couple of days upon his release, on January the 26th, to be exact, Mike Peterson started filing claims on Kathleen's assets with her employer, Nortel. In 10 days, he would receive the first check for around $30,000. On February the 19th, Nortel would release the second check to Michael for Kathleen's pension fund. This check was for $94,000. And this is when he would spend that money to go onto a shopping spree buying items for rooms in the house, different drugs, artwork, furniture. He got a $10,000 plasma TV. He got exercise equipment in order to convert one of the rooms into a gym room. He got a small fridge for his bedroom to keep the wines cool and next to him. Then, around the end of March, beginning of April, Michael Peterson will get one final check from Nortel. So, in total, Michael Peterson received about $340,000 from Nortel as a direct result of Kathleen's death. On top of that, if this was to be confirmed as an accident, if only the courts could back off and he didn't have to go to trial, he would also be getting his hands on $725,000 life insurance policy. So, on one side, a man has to live, he has to move on, he has to have something to look forward to. 
he has to profit out of something because who is going to hire him as a writer now? Who is going to put an advance down on any of his books? He has to pay all of the lawyers. So you kind of understand it from that perspective. But then when you have the background on Liz Ratcliffe, on her death, on how he made sure to leave himself money in her will, to make sure to profit out of Liz's two daughters, you can really see Michael's priorities here, and you can start thinking about the possible motivation. As Michael is cashing out on all of the checks from Kathleen's employer, Candace, her sister, is really running the show. If anybody else here listens to True Crime Obsessed or Obsessed with Disappeared, you're probably familiar with the term down bitch. The person that is relentless, that will not stop at anything until they make sure that the person responsible is behind bars. Like Chris Watts' wife Shannon's best friend. Like Candace, Kathleen's motherfucking sister. Because Candace just saw all of the red flags, all of the alarm bells went off in her head throughout this whole story. So, what she did is she actually came up with a theory herself, and she sent a picture of a blowpoke to Art Holland, to the detective that was on this case. She sent him a fax of a drawing, sort of like a sketch, and also a description of a blowpoke that she gifted to her sister a couple of years ago. As Candace is doing that, Michael is ensuring to put the best people on the case. So he has raised up the stakes in terms of the lawyers he's hiring for the upcoming trial. He had hired David Rudolph, who was this flamboyant, kind of circus-focused showman. You know exactly the type, the type that all of the high-profile cases would hire. I would highly suggest I don't know. I, I would not highly suggest. What am I saying? You can find David Rudolph's website, is what I was about to say. It exists, and most of his website is on this case. And most of the people commenting on that website are all just saying how once they have seen the staircase, they are convinced that Michael Peterson is indeed innocent. So, I guess he managed to convince a bunch of people, and he is a pretty decent lawyer. He got Michael surrounded by his family to do some form of damage control, to show his character to the public, make a statement. And in this statement, Michael said, Kathleen was my life. I have whispered her name in my heart a thousand times. She's there, and I can't stop crying. Upon the advice of his counsel now, he also hired Dr. Henry Lee to be his expert witness in trial. And this is the guy that is famous for testifying in O.J. Simpson's case and also for assisting prosecution in John Benet Ramsey's murder. Michael's defense team also decided to really ensure that Todd isn't implicated at all. They have hired a lawyer for the friend or the date that Todd had on that night. She was supposed to come into the police station to give her own testimony, but instead of her, a letter arrived to Art Holland saying that this and this person is representing her. Now, a day before Michael would profit from his wife's accidental death again and would get a second check from Nortel, 
Michael Peterson's defense will take a really hard hit because the autopsy pictures were finally made public under the North Carolina law. Basically, his lawyers asked the Attorney General's office if the pictures can be sealed until after the trial, which could have suited Michael Peterson a lot, but the Attorney General's office refused to intervene, so the autopsy pictures were made public. Once this decision was made in Rhode Island, Margaret Blair was facing a dilemma. She looked up the lead investigator, Art Holland, online and started wondering, should she call him and tell him about the death of her sister, Liz Ratliff? <laughs> it's like the sun is directly hitting the lens. I love it. No, I'm not doing anything. I'm not closing the curtain. Why would I? Look at me. I'm fucking Casper. <laughs> We are somehow not at the trial stage yet, because there's a few more things that really came to the surface and also didn't go into Michael's favor. You could really say that he didn't stand much chance from day one. One of the things that happened was that ABC 2020, you know, one of my favorite leisure time TV shows to binge on, did a profile on Dr. Henry Lee. And Dr. Henry Lee was already on the Michael Peterson's case. So this program that I did was basically just on the investigations that Dr. Lee has been doing and is doing at the moment, and it didn't specify the crime case. But people in Peterson's family, of course, recognized the scene because it was their family home. This is when Kathleen's family finally started contacting the investigators, starting contacting the lawyers, saying... We have only been honed in on this now. This has been hidden from us. We had no extent as to how that crime scene looked like. Then in May 2002, the value of Kathleen's estate, over a quarter of a million dollars, was announced. She died without a will, so that made Michael Peterson and Kathleen their heirs. And Michael renounced his right to administer the estate, so the responsibility fell to Caitlin. Just a couple of days from this announcement, the media finally picked up on the story of the death of Elizabeth Ratliff in 1985. This is all the whole of Durham could talk about. The similarities between the two deaths, the fact that both women were found at the bottom of the staircase, and also the physical resemblance between two women that had nothing else in common but having known Michael Peterson 16 years apart in two different countries. In May 2002, Michael will go in front of the judge that would be presiding over his trial, asking him to go to Reno, to his parents' house, to celebrate their 60th marriage anniversary. And the judge granted a request, so Michael went. But yet again, he lied. His parents weren't celebrating their 60th anniversary. In fact, his mom was connected to the machines, and those machines were the only thing keeping her alive. So they all waited for Michael to arrive to the hospital to take her off the machines and pronounce her dead. And I just have to wonder yet again, why lie about something so trivial? It could have been that he really wanted privacy, 
to grieve his own mother, that, you know, he didn't want people to know that it's something devastating that would attract the media attention, and he didn't want to be seen in this light that he's suddenly sharing a sob story. Like, I can get it from that way, but when you take everything we know about Michael Peterson in context, it just seems like yet another lie projecting something that he wished he was doing instead, because he probably wished that he was celebrating 60th anniversary of his parents, but instead one of his parents passed away. I just wanted to mention that because I just find the placement of his lies throughout this story to be quite interesting. I don't know if you see it as that, but I do. That August, Kathleen's daughter, Caitlin, spoke to one of the Lizzie sisters and her stepsister for the first time since this arrest and Michael being on bond. And here, yet another drift caused by Michael Peterson had been made. And for me, this is truly one of the biggest mysteries in this case, because I can sort of understand why Todd and Clayton, his biological children, would stand by him. But why would the Ratliff children, they stood by him, regardless of what kind of father, adoptive father he was, regardless of him benefiting off the two of them, regardless of, well, their mother dying at the bottom of the staircase and then them witnessing another woman dying at the bottom of the staircase. I just wish that I could know what story did Michael Peterson sell to these two girls? Because Kathleen's family will never see this as an accident, but he somehow managed the adoptive kids, the kids of another woman who died a similar death, to see this as nothing more than one. A couple of things happened in October 2002, some that I love more than the others. We kind of really close off the saga of Todd potentially being involved. Well, rather the, the lawyers do, okay? I never personally did. Because on October the 4th, the lawyer that they hired on behalf of Todd's friend testifies giving him the alibi. He says that Todd shouldn't be looked into because multiple people have seen him at a party, and then the friend, well, has the alibi for him, saying that he just arrived home, he arrived with her, she was the one to examine his dad, etc. So, they could align the times for Todd. So, this ended in a way where they couldn't uncover any grounds to take any legal action against Todd. And this is pretty much where this leaves Todd in this whole story. Another thing that happens in October is that Caitlin, Kathleen's daughter, lawyers up. And she sends the lawyers to the Petersons' home because she says she's scared of Michael, so she wants them to claim all of her belongings, to retrieve them and ship them over to her. Not just that, but she also files a wrongful death suit against Michael Peterson. Why? On what basis? Well, remember how... Kathleen had life insurance? Yeah. So, she actually submitted a change of beneficiary form for the policy, removing her ex-husband, Fred Atwater, and adding her new husband, Michael Peterson. But, by pure chance of God, I don't know, I don't know what I believe in, she forgot to sign the form. And her forgetting to sign the form meant that all of the money and the beneficiary of the policy 
would be Caitlyn, not Michael. Now, I'm not sure if Michael knew this at this moment in time, if he was gutted, if he was preparing his lawsuit, because he might not have seemed as the most stressed human out there, as he sent about a hundred pages draft of his new book to his agent. In March next year, 2003, he actually got a six-figure offer for this book, but then the publishers discovered that his trial is going to begin in the next couple of months, so they withdrew that offer quickly. In April 2003, finally, the body of Elizabeth Ratliff would be exhumed. We'll talk more about that in the trial section of the video, but let me just summarize the initial findings. So, the medical examiners found that the cause of death was due to severe concussive injury of the brain, caused by multiple blunt force impacts to the head. They found that the number of these injuries, the severity of them, the locations of them, the orientation of them is inconsistent with the fall down the stairs. Just like with Kathleen's lacerations, those would become the precedent for Liz Ratliff when you read this autopsy. In her mouth, there was an area of small bruising and a tear of the upper gums. Dr. Deborah Reddish also found the evidence of the bruising on her left hand and her left wrist. And then there was the finding of the amount of wounds to Liz Ratliff's head, seven, the same number that was found during Kathleen Peterson's autopsy. Now, that number could have very well been the coincidence, but the locations were also eerily similar. One on the very top of her head, and the other one in a similar yet smaller shape to the one that was found on the back of the head of Kathleen Peterson. The jury selection finally began on May the 5th, and it wasn't completed until June the 23rd. This gave the time to the assistant district attorneys, Frida Black and David Sachs, to travel to Germany with the main investigator on the case, Art, to meet with German authorities, to visit Lizzie's home, and to interview any potential witnesses, including Barbara, the nanny to Lizzie's daughters. They reviewed the police records, but due to the clash of laws, because it was two different continents, really, two different countries, German prosecutors didn't want to release the police records to them, they wanted assurances that Michael Peterson won't be charged with Elizabeth Ratliff's murder in the U.S., and also that he wouldn't be a subject to the death penalty. Having made these superficial observations in Lizzie's house, the ADAs could only return to the U.S. for this trial to start, for them to work on it, and then possibly, if he's never to be found guilty for Kathleen's murder, then they would need to work with German authorities in order to convict him for at least one, in Germany, if needed. So, this trial finally began on June the 23rd. The prosecution started their opening statements by showing the picture of a living, vibrant, smiling Kathleen Peterson. They said that the jurors should be able to feel this picture, feel the gentle, warm person that she was. The next picture that the prosecution showed to the jury was of Kathleen Peterson, sprawled on the stairway of her own house. 
The third picture that they have shown the jury was of Kathleen at the medical examiner's office. They pointed at the defense table, saying they will say this was an accident caused by a couple of falls in that stairwell. And we say it's not. We say it's murder, and you will have to decide that. They say this is three or four lacerations. We say it's at least seven, and you are going to have to be the judge of it. Then the lead prosecutors revealed something that was hidden in wrapped paper. He pulled out a blowpoke. He said this isn't the actual murder weapon, but the primary mechanism is the same. This is the weapon that would have inflicted the type of wounds that you will see in the autopsy pictures. They drew onto the perfect lifestyle, how they will hear from the defense that these two people were soulmates, how they have great jobs, lived in this mansion, how Kathleen was this great hostess, this manager for this huge communications company, and how Michael was a glowing writer. But then, behind closed doors, they were in debts. Michael didn't write a book since 1999, and they only relied upon one income. Mike Peterson, the creative thinker, the writer of fiction, was able to figure out a perfect solution. That solution was to make it appear as though Kathleen accidentally fell down her steps and died. And like magic, no more money problems. Like magic, Mike Peterson goes from a point where they are going to have to sell assets and live on credit to survive to. All of a sudden, with her death, has $1.8 million in his hand. There's only one catch. He's got to kill Kathleen Peterson to get that $1.8 million. When Peterson plays that 911 call, he gambled that the police were as dumb as he always claimed. There's blood on Kathleen under Kathleen, beside Kathleen. It's all dry. So he says when he gets there, he sees all this dry blood, and based on that assessment of Kathleen, and based on the observations that he makes of the area, he concludes that she's been dead for some time. This is not a case of the battle of the experts. This is a case about your exercise of your good reason and your common sense. And it's going to be a battle against what this defendant contends happened, what he wanted it to appear as having happened. He concluded this opening statement by reminding the jurors it was their responsibility to determine the truth and ask them to return a verdict of guilty to the charge of first-degree murder. Now, the defense's opening statement started as a show, in a dramatic way. David Rudolph didn't utter a word. He pressed the button and played the 911 call. That, ladies and gentlemen, was the voice of Michael Peterson, right after he found Kathleen Peterson at the foot of the stairs. I want to take you back with me before that terrible night, before that terrible call. He walked the jury through the duration of their relationship. He even read the letter from Kathleen to her mother from 1999, praising the man she has chosen as her new husband. He mentioned how the weekend before, just before Thanksgiving, Kathleen's co-worker said that Michael and Kathleen were very affectionate and in tune with each other. And before the defense table, Michael Peterson was kind of just mumbling those words to himself as if he learned the opening statement by heart. If the prosecution is correct, how do you go from soulmate and lover to cold-blooded killer? 
The answer is very simple. You don't. Nothing was different that weekend. Then Rudolf proceeded to talk about Kathleen, how intoxicated she got that night, and how they will hear testimonies from friends and doctors about her medical conditions, about her headaches and her dizziness. He described Michael discovering the body and the paramedics arriving on the scene, saying, now they went there, and initially it was treated as an accident, because that's what they initially thought it was. And so Todd Peterson was allowed to go up to Kathleen's body and hold her in his arms and get blood on his clothing. And Michael Peterson was allowed to go up to Kathleen. In fact, he had to be physically pulled off of her. Rudolf put forward the theory that it wouldn't be hard to understand why after months of Michael writing against the police, they would then come to the scene of the accident where his wife was found at the bottom of the staircase and have tunnel vision from the get-go and claim that this wasn't an accident with the altered and limited evidence that they could find. He said what his experts are going to testify to is that the injuries are more consistent with a fall rather than a beating, that there are no brain contusions, no swelling of the brain, no internal hemorrhage. And it was confirmed that it was a fall because the other physical evidence indicated that Kathleen sustained those injuries to her head at least 30 minutes before Michael Peterson walked in, found her, and called 911. And then he said something that I hope would have never come up in a trial today, but this was the early 2000s, just because of how, just, just how tone-deaf this is. So he pulled up those blood spatter pictures, right? And he said, yeah, our experts are going to show that those aren't consistent with the beating. And then he said, you've all seen dogs shake water off and it goes all over. Well, that happens with blood as well if it's wet. Or hands or your clothes coming in contact with a wall. Or coughing up blood or sneezing blood. That's what causes all the blood spatter, you see. As bad as it is, that's what experts will testify. He mentioned Elizabeth Ratliff and said that the judge has not yet ruled whether or not that evidence would be admitted in trial. He mentioned Elizabeth Ratliff just to drive the point across that the prosecution didn't even mention her. And they did mention her before when they would speak in front of a judge. So why not mention her? Is this just yet another display of tunnel vision? Because the police only learned about Elizabeth Ratliff in 2001, following the death of Kathleen Peterson. So is this just yet another attempt to blame Michael Peterson for both deaths and to draw similarities upon them, while he's, in fact, innocent in both cases? He pointed to the fact that the prosecution didn't even ask for her body to be exhumed for 15 months. And then he finished his opening statement by saying what Michael Peterson brought to Kathleen was true happiness over 13 years. That's the picture. That's not posed. That's Kathleen sitting on Michael's lap. He would reiterate the claim of loving marital relationship and insisted that everyone knew Mike had nothing to do with Kathleen's death, asking for a verdict of not guilty. 
Now, of course, unless this video was to last for about like 24 hours, I can't go through all of the evidence and witness testimonies in trial. So I'll try to give the unbiased account of events to put as much as possible, but also include the highlights and what, according to the book, left the most impact on the jury. The first witnesses were the paramedics on the scene. And here the prosecution got them to speak about the blood being dry, about them immediately observing that the body must have been there for quite some time, and just finding everything unusual, the attempt of a cleanup. But then Rudolf stood up, the defense team, and they asked them about all of the discrepancies, about them in their statement never describing the blood as dry. He emphasized on all of the mistakes that were made between 2.50 when the paramedics made it to the scene and 3.25. How that would have prolonged the events, how that could have led to the blood drying up for an additional half an hour. He pointed out to how they slandered Todd and his friend and that that was the basis for them to get a warrant. Here, pointing to that investigation of the used condom on the scene and whether that pointed out to Todd actually sleeping with somebody in his parents' bedroom. And they claimed that this was slender because this friend was actually married, so they weren't just attempting to ruin Michael's character, but also Todd's. After this, what the jury found to be really impactful was the video of the crime scene. So up until that, the autopsy pictures were available to the public. But of course, just like Kathleen's family, the jury was in shock. People commented that their hands were going over their mouth, that people were audibly gasping, gagging, just surprised with the amount of blood. And then they called the forensic unit supervisor to the stand, and he started talking about the luminal testing he did on the crime scene and about the footprints that they found, the sole prints, rather, the bare footprints. This witness said that the foot impression was consistent with the design, elements, size, and wear pattern of Michael Peterson's shoe. The blood spatter expert would display the shorts and talk about how it just seemed like the shorts were smeared with the water based on where they found the blood, and that what they believe was the initial blood spatter and also what was found on the shorts as dry and dark blood is consistent with the blunt force trauma as the cause of death. They also made sure to mention the weather, that it was about 55 degrees Fahrenheit, which I think I googled. Did I google it? Which I believe is like 13 degrees Celsius. I'll put it on the screen once I find it again. That simply it isn't the weather in which you would chill by the pool in the cold in shorts. So this supports the theory that they probably went into the house, that he changed clothes, and then maybe an argument ensued. But then the defense, during the cross-examination, questioned them about all of the evidence that wasn't seized. The phone, the towels underneath Kathleen's head, and the keys in the door. The defense would have the witness called John Lestma, who was an expert in forensic neuropathology. 
and she disagreed with Deborah Radish's opinion, testifying that the wounds on the victim's head were actually more characteristic of impacts upon a flat and immovable surface, such as stairs in this case. But then upon the prosecution's cross-examination, she caved and said, well, she can't actually fully discard these injuries being influenced or sustained with an object. Dr. Henry Lee, who was the forensic scientist hired by Michael, explained that the medium-velocity blood spatter can be caused by a variety of actions, including the coughing of blood. He would say that there were more than 10,000 blood drops at the scene, and that those drops appear to be moving in different directions, and that would be inconsistent if somebody was to be beating the victim. He testified that he saw the evidence of blood in the victim's mouth from the scene photographs, and that led him to believe that the blood spatter is actually caused by coffee. They also had this professor of biomechanics who was to drive the narrative that Kathleen was walking upwards, that she fell once, and then some injuries were sustained, but then she manages to get up and go back at it, start climbing the stairs again, and falls again, again supported by the theory that she was dizzy, possibly drunk, although we know that based on the alcohol level in her system that nobody really argued about, that she wasn't. So this second fall led to those further injuries, and then once she was at the bottom of the stairs, she was still alive and coughing up blood, hence why the blood was all over the wall, just in completely different directions far away from her. Then Dr. Deborah Reddish took the stand. She testified about the autopsy reports, the seven injuries on the head, the defensive wounds, how those injuries are consistent with somebody being struck by an object. She further drove the point across that the skull is curvy. The stairs wouldn't be able to make those wounds because the stairs can't move. The four to five inches long lacerations that she found couldn't have been made upon a flat impact on a stair. Another salacious thing that came out of this trial were, of course, Michael's internet searches. The judge actually didn't even decide up until sometime into the trial whether or not he will find them admissible in court. But then he said that he admitted them in court because the court is going to find this evidence preferred by the state relevant. It goes to the issue of motive. It also goes to attack the idyllic marriage that the defendant has set forth through his counsel in the opening statement. The prosecution will really go at it when it came to the emails, for a reason, because it would substantiate a motive for the jury. So they show the jury the historical exchange of emails that Michael did for research, but also showing all of the emails preceding Kathleen's death, and also making sure to support that with the fact that Michael wasn't writing any books at the moment, that he didn't have any kind of reason to do this sort of research. They also made sure to drive the point across that most of the searches that they found they had to retrieve because Michael deleted hundreds of files between December the 8th and December the 12th. 
When we spoke about the timeline, we spoke about the deletion software that Michael has used. So that was also explained to the jury. Like, why is your first thought on the crime scene while the police is looking at your wife to use this software, to delete these emails? Why are you deleting them? I think in the timeline I said a day before or the same day. Does that show premeditation? And why, again, as Kathleen's family is trying to sort out her funeral, are you spending time on your computer deleting your searches and emails? The guy that he corresponded with in a couple of months before Kathleen's death also took the stand. He was actually given, like, a different name to protect his identity, even though he testified in person without his face masked for the public. But sure. This was, of course, sensationalized by the media, so I will try to stay away from that. What came out of that was the confirmation by this sex escort that Michael and him never actually met, and that he wasn't, like, persistently pursuing him. That it could have come across as maybe somebody just interested in doing research, in knowing about sex work, and knowing about the rate that they are charging. Brett and Michael were corresponding, and Michael was asking about the price. And then it seemed like, you know, the two of them were going to meet, that Michael was all, like, sort of ready to go. But Brett didn't respond, or just wasn't interested. And then he got back to Michael a couple of weeks after, and then Michael never responded back. Maybe his feelings were hurt. But also, it planted a seed in the jury and everybody watching that, well, that also meant that Michael's marriage wasn't perfect because he was chatting with men on the side, proven through historical records that they have now had. Then the defense cross-examined Brad and they confirmed that they have indeed never met, that everything was just dropped, and that actually he thought that he might have been rude, so he started up a conversation with Michael after a couple of weeks, and that Michael never responded. That Michael might have lost interest or never really wanted to pursue it. And another thing that Michael's defense was saying was that, yeah, he might have deleted some of the emails, but he kept them printed out. So, Michael, apparently, all of these email correspondences with Brad, he kept them in a drawer. So, that means that he was openly bisexual, that Kathleen knew. Because otherwise, why would he have this printed out, having it in his drawer where she could easily access it? She could access the computer, she could access everything. In my opinion, it could have been for further research once he actually starts writing another book, because we don't know what was in his head, what his idea for that book was. But also, in my mind, that might be actually very incriminating, in a sense that if the argument started within a house on that evening, if this was in any way accidental, well, Kathleen might have discovered the emails, and that might have been the reason for the argument. A couple of witnesses that have made an impression on the jury, Lizzie's sister, she was the one to point out all of the similarities between Liz and Kathleen that actually made her pick up the phone and report this to the police, making them aware of this. Then there was Candice, Kathleen's sister, 
and the defense team was just yet again pushing all of the family members too far, according to Diane Fanning's book. It's just all of them would break down on the stand just because of how hard they were pushing to prove that the relationship between Michael and Kathleen was perfect. And then there was Anne, Michael's sister. She completely turned around after she heard all of the evidence. So on the stand, she said, I don't think anyone could easily believe one's brother could be a murderer. It's just something you don't fathom. After the last few days of the testimony, her perspective changed. I'm not keeping it a secret that I think he killed both Kathleen and Liz. And she also sort of addressed Michael's first wife, Patty, who was in the court, saying, don't you get it, Patty? He killed your friend. Patty would be among many of Michael's supporters throughout his whole life, all the way up until the end. Patty always stood by her ex-husband. Now, something that the defense team did that I find interesting, and it was definitely one of the rare things that happens in these true crime cases, that was to revisit the crime scene. All of the jurors actually went back to the Cedar Street, to their location, to their family home. Some of them would walk up the steps, look back to see what it would feel like to fall from that position. Some of them were making the swinging movements, sort of as if the blow poke was in their hand. So the defense obviously hoped that the jurors are going to see that space as too tight of a space to swing a blow poke. And they did. But also some of them had a different conclusion. That the space was just too small for somebody to get the injuries that they were seeing in court upon the fall. Now going back in court, there were two testimonies that would really leave an impact with the police. And they were, of course, with the blood spatter analyst. So one of them would be Deaver, who made this whole presentation, as I mentioned before, with like the rulers, the measurements that he had upon like different splatter, explaining all sorts of things, how this can be sustained based on the steps, that the blood spatter on the walls would have never reached that high with the way that somebody could fall down, even if she fell from like the top stair, that it is consistent with the blood force trauma to the head. And then the defense had Henry Lee on the stand to explain the, the coughing thing. And this, yet again, oh my god, this thing had me stressed. So, Lee explained, Dr. Lee explained that the blood spatter would be as a result of coughing, sneezing, or wheezing. Which one is it, my man? Which one also isn't her neck broken at this point? While on the stand, this man had a bottle of ketchup and then he held it up and said he's going to use some ketchup. He swigged it into his mouth and then coughed onto the whiteboard. Now, the ketchup did fly like far and wide around the board, even landing on the prosecution's table, which Frida Black wasn't really happy about. And then, obviously, seeing that this junk science isn't really proving the point, he sort of turned to the jury and said, I mean, obviously, it would be different if the person is lying down. And then he kind of turned around like, well, obviously, I'm not going to be the one lying down. Turning to the defense table like, anybody else? Like, do you want to lie down and, like, spit ketchup onto the board that I'm going to hold 
in the same position where the wall was. Like, who does this? So in the end, this wasn't done. Comes as no surprise, does it? And Frida Black, of course, slandered the shit out of this man, saying that this is junk science, this shouldn't even be admitted, and the jury shouldn't really be basing any decisions off of what they have just seen. One of what were considered bombshells in this case came actually only a couple of weeks before the trial's end. And that was when, apparently, one of Peterson's sons discovered the blowpoke. It was in the garage this whole time, covered in, like, spider webs. The forensic tests were performed on this, and, of course, it wasn't used and couldn't have been a murder weapon. So, this really didn't lead anywhere, except of placing a seed in jurors' mind about a couple of things. That maybe the prosecution is working backwards, really. That maybe they actually don't even know what the murder weapon is in this case. Yeah, it could have been a blowpoke, it could have also been probably multiple other objects, if we are claiming that he was the one to kill his wife. And just as they have done with Deaver and the blood spatter analysis sort of going backwards to fit into their theory, the same has happened here. Because here is the blowpoke, the same blowpoke that Candace bought her sister sitting in their garage all of this time, untouched. And another thing, it allowed the defense to, yet again, shit on the police work done here. Because how did you search the house? How did you search everything, even with the idea of what a murder weapon is? You searched the perimeter around it, you searched the house multiple times, and you didn't find the blowpoke that now the sons found upon one single search. Then, let us speak about the possibility of there being a motive. So, Katherine Kaiser took the stand. Who the hell is Katherine Kaiser? Well, I never mentioned her. So, she was working for the Nortel's HR, the company where Kathleen worked. And she would testify that Michael Peterson received 346-plus thousand from the victim due to her death, and that he claimed another million and a half in the insurance awaiting final approval by the insurance company. So, she did the math, and he was to receive almost two million dollars as the result of victim's death. Then there was the special agent for the financial crimes unit that testified that their credit card debt surpassed $140,000 by the time that Kathleen was found dead. And then, speaking of motive, if there was only a case to compare it to, where Michael benefited financially, they admitted the evidence concerning the death of Elizabeth Ratliff, including the payments that he received as he was the beneficiary of her last will. They pointed out to the jury that he was getting monthly payments from the government for the children that he was taking care of, Lizzie's two daughters, on their behalf. So, in both cases, we have the financial motive. And we also have plenty of similarities. I'm going to put them on the screen so that I don't have to read all of them, but the same amount of lacerations, the similar shape of one of them, the similar placing of most of them, the fact that both women were found at the bottom of the staircase. 
that he was the last person to see them, that there were no other eyewitnesses, that he was also the first person on the crime scene feeding the story to the police. No murder weapon recovered, a lot of blood on both crime scenes, no forced entry, defensive wounds. Interestingly, something I didn't think about, the time of day. Both happened late night, early morning. We can't really establish the exact time of death. And also general period of time in the year. Liz's death happened in November, Kathleen's in December. Now, before discussing the closing statements, you might be thinking, Maya, you did Michael Peterson dirty. You did him dirty. His lawyer, in the opening statement that you have read out, word by word, sort of, promise that he is going to showcase his character. He is going to prove what a glowing, amazing person Michael Peterson was. He is going to show that Kathleen had all of these medical conditions. She had headaches, she was dizzy, she was drinking a lot. Why didn't you tell us anything about that? Because that never happened. Michael quite literally didn't take the stand himself, which was a smart decision because he would have probably been destroyed. And also didn't really have character witnesses, military personnel, all of those people that he would have met through the years of his nomadic lifestyle. He didn't really have anybody in his corner. And also, more importantly, probably for this particular evening, nobody could testify for Kathleen ever visiting a doctor, for complaining about migraines, getting medications, for it complaining that she was dizzy. None of that was true. And we move to the closing statements. The defense team, led by Rudolf, chose to outline all of the reasonable doubts in this case. First one, the missing murder weapon isn't missing and it wasn't used in a murder. Second, there's no credible motive. You don't just decide to kill your wife for no reason. That the prosecution had it for him. That they were working backwards trying to fit the story into their own narrative. That they didn't have enough of a financial motive, so they had to present the sexual one. That Michael and Kathleen were happily married. That Michael grieved and was in shock as he was supposed to. That he fit the picture of a grieving husband. That Kathleen's injuries aren't consistent with the beating. That the information and documentation from the scene isn't reliable, because they didn't take all of the evidence, they just took the evidence that suited them. That the prosecution relied on junk science with a blood spatter, and on Deborah Reddish making false statements as to actually what happened and how many wounds were sustained on Kathleen's body. Once again, he played that 911 tape. He really relied on that motherfucker, which I just don't understand after having listened to it a few times. I'm like, this wouldn't be the hill I would die on. This wouldn't be, like, my Mecca and Medina, like, my fucking Trojan horse. Like, I wouldn't really die on this hill, but sure. I guess you thought people would when they hear Michael all panicked. Every time Michael would hear a 911 call, he would start crying, which were rare displays of emotion that he showed. Actually, the book states the only times he would cry during the trial were when this tape was placed on a 911 tape or when words written by or about him were read aloud. So Rudolf finished his closing statement saying, We ask you, after considering all the evidence in this case, to return a verdict that will speak the truth a verdict of not guilty of first-degree murder. 
As for prosecution's closing statement, Frida Black stood up, she was pissed, she was fuming, and she would also make a great partner for cocktail drinking. So, she immediately touched upon the whole soulmate saga. She said that soulmates say things like, I promise to love you, comfort you, honor you, keep you, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and health to each other. Then she proceeded to ask the jury, did he honor her? Did he keep her? Did he forsake all others? And was he faithful only unto her? You all know the answers to those questions. The answer to every one of those is no. She emphasized on the evidence behind the red neurons, so the neurological report that was done on Kathleen, and said that this meant that for two hours Michael Peterson had time to do things before that 911 call was placed. She touched upon the murder weapon, saying, we are not required to be absolutely certain that weapon went somewhere. But now, why did he do all these things? You need to keep in mind, we are not dealing with an average individual over here. We are dealing with a fictional writer. Some people even say he is a good fictional writer. He is a person who knows how to create a fictional plot. And in this case, he has tried to create one. He tried to sell it to the EMS workers. He tried to sell it to his family. And in this courtroom, he's tried to sell it to you. A fictional plot. Then she attacked the 911 call that the defense team relied upon, saying, is he really a grieving spouse? Why didn't he try to give her CPR? You ever ask yourselves that? Would you really be checking your emails if your spouse was lying out in the hallway with blood everywhere? And then, and then she attacked the junk science. And Mr. Rudolph said that state experts had engaged in junk science. Well, what do you call spitting ketchup across the courtroom? Throwing red ink? What do you call that? Does that seem scientific to you? I call that junk science. And when it came to the defense's attack of their motives, she said, do you really believe that Kathleen knew that Mr. Peterson was bisexual? Does that make common sense to you? That it was okay with her to go to work while he stayed at home and communicated by email? I asked Brad what they were gonna do. He told you. And I don't mean to offend anybody, but he did say they were gonna have anal sex. Do you really believe that was okay with Kathleen? The only reason that meeting didn't take place was because of Brad. It wasn't because of Mr. Peterson. He was fired up and ready to go. Even got the price right. That's not the way that soulmates conduct themselves. She brought a statement to the close saying, We do thank you. All of our lives have been disrupted, but it's worth it to find the truth and to seek justice. Not just for Michael Peterson, to seek justice for Kathleen. She is the one that died a horrible, brutal death. Nobody deserves that. Not even a dog deserves to die like the way she had to die. I think she did this on purpose, because how Michael treated all those dogs. Can you imagine the pain and suffering she endured? You can just look at the pictures of the back of her head and just try to fathom that thought. Michael Peterson is guilty of first-degree murder.
So the jury adjourned and they went to deliberate. And during the first afternoon, four of them were undecided, five found him guilty, and four voted not guilty. What all of them would agree upon, even when they didn't agree on the verdict, was that Kathleen didn't die from the fall down the stairs. They discarded the blow poke and also discarded a bunch of testimonies that they have heard, like all of the drunk science stuff. And they knew that they had so many questions unanswered about the murder weapon, about why did they find it there, that it was to a certain degree true that the prosecution tried to fit things in and out of their theory. But what was the turning point for them was Dr. Deborah Radish's testimony. The biggest obstacle when it came to the verdict for them was the premeditation. But after deliberation and bringing the three-month trial to close, they landed on a verdict, guilty of first-degree murder, and they sentenced Michael Peterson to life behind bars. So, let us speak about the timeline after Michael's imprisonment. So, first of all, in 2004, the house was on the market and, well, it was kind of dropping in price. It was supposed to go for almost a million dollars. But in the end, it was finally bought in July 2004 for around $640,000. Now, of course, Mike Peterson started appealing from the get-go. So, in 2005, one of his defense attorneys filed an appeal saying that the pursuit by the prosecution of the same-sex relation and also the death of Elizabeth Ratcliffe were the reasons why Michael Peterson didn't get a fair trial. In 2006, Michael will file for bankruptcy. And this would be seen as an attempt to delay the trial to determine the amount that Caitlin was to get from the wrongful death lawsuit. In 2007, finally, Mike and Caitlin agreed on a 25 million statement for the wrongful death lawsuit. In 2009, a neighbor of Peterson's, who was also an attorney in Durham, called Lawrence Pollard, he started looking into the public details on the case. And after looking at the autopsy pictures, after looking at all of the details, he approached the police, suggesting that an owl might be responsible for Kathleen's death. He said he started thinking this after he read the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation evidence list and found that a feather was listed on the list of evidence that they have taken from the crime scene. So this information gets through to the Peterson's lawyers, and they start looking into the evidence collected on the scene, all of those forensic evidence that they collected with tweezers. Further lab reports would find a microscopic owl feather and also a wooden sliver from a tree entangled in a clump of hair that was pulled out of Kathleen's head. When found on the scene, she was holding this clump of hair in her left hand. Once this clump of hair was re-examined, they found two more microscopic owl feathers. So let me once again put the list of things that supported the owl theory on the screen. They were owls living in the woods near Peterson's house. They are aggressive and dangerous according to certain websites on the internet. They have attacked people mm -hmm, numerous occasions. People have suffered due to these owls. 
There were drops of blood on the outside walkway leading to the front door of the house. There was another large smear of blood on the outside of the front door frame as shown in some police pictures that they just contributed to Michael's bloody hands. The most convincing for me, I have to admit, if I was to give any credit to this theory, would be the wounds on Kathleen's scalp that are in the shape of the talons of a barred owl. Well, rather shaped as only one of the owl's legs. I don't know where that owl moved the second one. Sure. A feather found on Kathleen's body. The twig that was found in dried blood. And then what the defense was trying to present the whole time, that Kathleen's injuries didn't lead to the brain swelling. There was no skull fracture. There was no subdural hematoma, no hemorrhage. Nothing really going as deep to reach the brain. My thing is, right? Cool, cool. And I will did it. Paint it for me. Like they did with the blood spatter. Like they did with all the drunk science. Paint it for me. So she's going from the pool inside, then she leaves to go somewhere else outside, she gets attacked by an owl. Of course, if you get attacked by anything, I presume you would scream as any normal person would, but what Michael doesn't hear, the screams. This attack is the most silent owl attack out there. The owl finishes the job. Kathleen drops on her head, on her wounds, that the owl has made in that shape in the stairway. The owl leaves some evidence behind because it is an owl, she can't clean it up, and then she departs and leaves the scene. As I mentioned in part one, we don't believe in owl killers on this channel. Maybe, maybe I would believe in it more because truly, yes, that autopsy picture, you know, the owl leg, it does look like it can possibly be made into a shape, but then again, painted for me. So what? That owl grabbed, latched onto the head. Owl latched onto Kathleen's head with only, what, one of the legs. Where's the other one? What, is, is that the one that's scratching at the surface? Because then that wound doesn't correspond with the owl Tamil or whatever it's called, knowing at Kathleen's skull. I told you in part one, this case reminds me of two really famous cases. One of Casey Anthony, The History of Lying by Michael Peterson. And then the second case is the case of Phoebe Hensjok. The case from Australia where a woman we are supposed to believe has launched herself down a trash chute. It reminds me of that case in a sense of, yes, there are first times for everything. This could be a plausible theory. But then there are discrepancies to it as well. A lot, a lot of discrepancies for somebody to just keep pushing this one. And what you need to remember, most importantly, this wasn't represented in court. It wasn't represented in the initial trial. And from everything I found, also it isn't officially used in the appeals. So if we believe this, then why aren't we using it as serious approach, as a serious theory of what could have happened. Surely as lawyers, as Michael Peterson himself, the fictional writer, once you see the evidence list, once you see feathers on it, once you see a twig on it, once you see the autopsy pictures, that is the first thing that would pop into your head. But it didn't.
in the first place. So why does it now? With Michael still in jail, his appeal based on the homosexual relationship and Liz Ratliff's evidence was overturned. But then in 2011, the police was investigating Duan Deaver. Do you remember the blood spatter analyst that was serving for the prosecution? Well, they found out that he actually, in the past, throughout his career, conducted unscientific experiments misleading the jury about his experience and credentials. So they overviewed all of the cases that he worked on, of course, starting with one of the most famous ones. And once they did, they found out that Deaver misled the jury about the nature of the bloodstain evidence. Purely because of this, Michael Peterson would eventually be granted a new trial. But in 2017, Michael decided not to proceed with a second trial, not to put everybody through it, not to put himself through it, because he was at the age of 73 at this point. So he decided to opt in for an Alford plea instead. Alford plea meaning that he was to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter, acknowledging that prosecutors had enough evidence to convict him, but also insisting on his innocence. Upon his release from prison due to him taking the Alford plea, his attorneys filed a motion to allow Michael to pay for a bird expert at the Smithsonian Institute to examine feather fragments found in Kathleen's hair and determine if she was attacked by a raptor. I don't know where this led to, so let us instead talk where the individuals that we have spoken about during this story are at now. Also, just another one last comment on owl killers. If this is what we are basing it on, what was in Kathleen's hair, so we are not even basing it on the most crucial, probable evidence, which was the talent on her head. Cool. What do you think is in your hair right now? Even if you left the shower like a second ago, there's probably particles, dust. If you went outside, probably little bits of everything that you passed by outside. Just something to hold in mind. If there were owls living in this area, these barred owls, well then, yeah, they would find feathers on her. They would find twigs and whatever owls bring because they lived in the area and because the two of them spent hours outside by the pool. Make it make sense. Just make it make sense. Make me believe in this. I'll be the first person to eat my words up. If you can picture this for me, I'll be the first person to shut the fuck up. Until then, I won't. So where are they now? <laughs> His sons, Clayton and Todd, live in two different states. Clayton has two kids. He apparently hasn't blown anything else up since last time we spoke about Clayton, really. Well, of course, we wouldn't know about it, would we? It's such an interesting story that we just don't pick up on, because ever since he was released from prison, Michael drives the narrative and what is known about his family, and a lot of them want to stay private. Todd leads a private life, and he has moved to Tennessee. Michael moved back to Durham, and since his release, he worked on The Staircase, the Netflix documentary, and he also self-published two books behind the staircase and beyond the staircase. According to the internet, the proceeds from these books go to charities. 
because apparently he isn't allowed to profit, you know, the son of Samlo or whatever it's called. And also he says that if he was allowed to profit out of this, that that would mean that he is admitting to murdering Kathleen. Which you could also argue that him accepting Alfred plea means that he believes he is guilty of killing Kathleen, but sure. Another thing that the documentary leaves out that I have found in a couple of articles, mostly tabloids, I have to admit, is that Michael might have had an affair with one of the staircase directors. No official source mentions this, there's no, like, pictures of them, the two of them ever got engaged, married, anything like that. I've read that his first wife, Patty, died, and that everybody that stood by Michael during the trial still stands by him, and vice versa. All the people that weren't his number one supporters still aren't to date. So that is the case of Michael motherfucking Peterson. To finalize this saga, let us just break down a couple of theories, and then let me tell you what I believe happened on that night. So there's a theory that this was an accident, that Michael, to a certain degree, supported in court. There's never been a theory of an intruder, well, unless we are to believe that the intruder is a bird. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say, you can't be saying that somebody else came in and killed Kathleen, but it wasn't Michael, and saying that it was an owl in the same time. So if it was an intruder, it was an owl. And if it was an owl, prove it to me. Thank you very much. There are Reddit threads upon Reddit threads out there arguing that Todd might have been behind this. And this is why, in my opinion, the lack of information is equally dangerous as misinformation. Even more so, if possible. It doesn't fit the timeline. It doesn't fit the blood spatter found in the scene. It doesn't fit the alibi his friends gave for him. And also, it doesn't fit the motive. It was his stepmother. He didn't really have any known beef disagreements with her. He wouldn't have had as strong of a motive as Michael did. Now, let's speak what I believe might have happened. And I'd like you to hear me out, and especially if you are watching this as a parent, to let me know what you think once I sort of tell you the story. And also, I'd advise watching an interview that he did, I think, upon his release, but he's still in prison in the uniform. Just because it's from that point on that I sort of started forming this opinion, then, of course, I researched the whole story, and everything kind of just makes sense to me. If we are to look at this through the lens of all of the lies that Michael Peterson has told throughout his life, most of his lies had a bit of truth to them, and most of them were used for his self-preservation, to make him look better or to project something that he really wanted people to think actually happened. So, I believe that the two of them were by the pool. Kathleen and Michael were probably drinking, just chatting away. And then, at some point, Kathleen went inside. And Michael followed. Possibly because it was cold. One of the multiple arguments could have ensued. Both of them were extremely stressed. This was probably enhanced by the two of them drinking a bit. 
And they started arguing, whether it was about the debts, financial stressors, the fact that Michael hasn't written a book in two years, that he isn't supporting the family, whether she discovered about him being bisexual. This argument escalates. Michael grabs whatever was close to him. And due to the rage that he has felt because of all of the issues pressuring him at that moment, he kills Kathleen. He tries to stage this as an accident, and at that moment, Todd comes in. Whether he returns by himself or with that friend that also lawyered up, both could be true. Michael tells him a story. He might have told him it was just an accident. Something that I think would have worked and nobody really mentions is he could have mentioned Clayton. Todd, one of your brothers was in prison. Now, if you don't go along with this story, you're going to lose your father as well. Due to what? Due to just an accidental death that happened tonight. After this, he manages to convince Todd to dispose of the murder weapon. He could have told him then and there when Todd should return to the crime scene when roughly he will ring 911. In fact, Michael could have told Todd to bring all of those friends along as an alibi in order to create chaos so that people can't even figure out the timeline in their head in order to prove the police was just as dumb as he thought. He rings 911 and the story ensues. Is it crazy? Possibly. You might think this theory is crazy, it's complete bullshit, it is equally fictional as the owl theory. If so, let me know what you believe in. If you believe he's innocent, what made you prevail in that direction? Why I'm asking the parents to chip in with their opinion is because during his interviews and just his behavior in general, and if we are to believe the forensic evidence, the blood drop at the back of Todd's shoe, I think this again matches Michael's personality of trying to do everything to protect his children. He knew the police was going to look at him, and probably him only, so he had to eliminate the possibility of them ever looking into Todd. And he tried really hard to do that. So, if you are a parent, let me know what you think about this one, because I don't think this is the John Benet Ramsey, like, I don't think this is the cover-up where a child might have accidentally killed the person and then the father is covering up for them. I think it's more of, again, him seeing how to drive a narrative in every single situation and knowing the theory that the police was going to buy. In the end, Michael had strong motives to kill Kathleen. And I truly think the affair bit, the bisexuality, was actually down the list out of all of the Peterson cases that I've covered, out of probably all of the cases that I've covered in general. I truly think here, if we are to believe that Michael had something to do with both Elizabeth Ratliff and Kathleen Peterson's case, financial motivation would have been strong. And don't get me wrong, I think with Kathleen, this was an accident, that this wasn't premeditated. And why do I think that? Is because I think if Michael Peterson killed her with intention, with premeditation, he would have made sure 
that that will is going to him, that he is benefiting out of it, that it won't go to Caitlyn. Just purely because of how obsessed he was with Liz Ratliff and that financial situation. And speaking of Liz Ratliff, I just don't think that even after doing a deep dive into this, there is enough impartial evidence for me to make an educated guess. That one, if you think about it, if anything, could have been even more premeditated. Also, when looking into motives, I found this interesting article on narcissism. Speaking about people with narcissistic personality disorder, who project a false face to the world and manage all social interactions through this fictional self. According to this article, people often become involved with a narcissist without having any awareness of who he really is, because this person would express surprise that society should hold them responsible and want to punish them for their actions. When faced with the judgment of others, they would feel wronged and persecuted, and it is rare for them to feel any regret for what they had done or any empathy for their victim. I hope this deep dive showed you that everything about Michael Peterson was about his self-preservation. Through his life, his marriages, through his schemes. So why are we not to believe that it was all about self-preservation through his crimes as well? That is it. The longest one yet. Oh, I love me a two-parter. I love editing them. I love it. You want to volunteer to edit this? You want to volunteer to edit, like, five hours of footage? Be my fucking guest. Do it. Claim your ticket in the first comment ever. I'm done, because I need to edit them. And then go to Oxford for, like, a day tomorrow. Which will probably be even shorter than a day, considering. Considering this is happening. Let me know your theories in the comments. What was that accent? Stop that. Cut that. Cut that to the core. Let me know your theories in the comments. And uh, I shall be seeing you once I wash Peterson's off my skin and all these free insane cases. And um, if this month taught you anything, that is not to marry a person named Peterson. Especially if they have connections with these three individuals we spoke about this month. Mm -mm. Cut that out. Cut that out. I'm interested in the theories downstairs, especially from the parents downstairs. That is what professional people call comment section. Sick. Love it. Love that for you downstairs. <laughs> Why would they think that was a logical explanation? We're downstairs. They're like coming in front of your house, Maya. They're the fucking FBI. They will find you. They will hunt you down. They're Liam Neesons of this nation. Please don't. Please don't literally live in a garbage lot. So, <laughs> God, get out of this. Get out. Get out. Get out right now. Get out. See you next week. Okay. Cool. <laughs> so aggressive.